Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we're back with another Oscar Rewind. We are taking it back 70 years to 1953. So the winner that year was From Here to Eternity, and the other nominees, we had Julius Caesar, The Robe, Roman Holiday, and Shane. So we'll be diving into everything about these movies. This year really stretched my brain, I will say that, (laughs) and my appreciation for old Hollywood cinema, but I'm excited to dive in. What is your initial thought about this year in film? I had seen three of these movies before, From Here to Eternity, Roman Holiday, and Julius Caesar, but Shane and The Robe were both new watches to me. And I think as a group, you know, the 50s, it's a really interesting time in Hollywood history. I personally prefer the films that come before and the films that come after the 50s, typically. Like, this isn't a decade I tend to spend a lot of time in when I'm thinking about classic Hollywood history. But I think looking at these films as a collection, we have some that really hold up today and that I would... You know, definitely recommend to people who are looking to get into film history, who are looking to spend more time with some of our biggest actors. And there are some that show that 1953 was 70 years ago and maybe haven't aged as well as some of the other classic Hollywood hits that we've talked about before that really stand the test of time. So I think, though, this group, I mean, it comes at such an interesting point in Hollywood, where we are still dealing with the production code, but audiences are also turning to television for the first time, and studio executives are trying to create things that are bigger and maybe better than they had before to bring audiences back to theaters. And we'll talk about that definitely with The Robe and Cinemascope, but I think overall I'm pretty mixed on this Best Picture lineup, I will say, but... We can get into that more as we talk about each movie individually. Yeah, reading about not only the ceremony, but how these movies got made. There were multiple directors that wanted to push the code too. Like one in particular just said, screw it. I'm putting it out there if you don't like it too bad. So yeah, it does feel like a turning point whether these five movies show it or not. And yeah, there were some fun stories about our first movie we'll be talking about. So let's get into it and we can talk more about what happened in pre-production, which I think is really fun. So to start, we have our best picture winner from here to eternity. The description here at an army barracks in Hawaii in the days preceding the attack on Pearl Harbor, lone wolf soldier and boxing champion Prue Pruitt refuses to box, preferring to play the bugle instead. Hard-hearted Captain Holmes subjects Prue to a grueling series of punishments while, unknown to Holmes, the gruff but fair Sergeant Warden engages in a clandestine affair with the captain's mistreated wife. This was directed by Fred Zinneman. It stars Burt Lancaster, Deborah Carr, Montgomery Clift, Donna Reed, and Frank Sinatra. This had a record-tying set of nominations, so it had 13 nominations. It won for Picture, Director, Supporting Actor for Sinatra, Supporting Actress for Reed, Screenplay, Cinematography Black and White, Film Editing, and Sound Recording. And its five other nominations were Actor for Clift, Actor for Lancaster, Actress for Carr, Costume Design Black and White, and Music, Score of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. 
I think looking back at this set of nominees is interesting. One, because I wouldn't have pegged from here to eternity as like the clear winner when the nominations are telling us it was its wins. It did really well at the box office. It ended up being the third top grossing movie that year. And also the precursors. We had Zinnemann winning director and Sinatra winning supporting actor at the Golden Globes. At the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Film, Director, and Actor for Lancaster. I feel like nowadays there's really not much overlap. And then it also won DGA and WGA. So people love this movie, critics, audiences, and the Academy. And I watched this movie maybe a year-ish ago in watching all the Best Picture winners. So I was somewhat familiar with it, but... I think there are parts that work for me and there are parts that don't, but people who are familiar with the James Jones novel know it's a huge undertaking. It was like 860 pages, and I think this movie does it justice from how it captures the characters. It's very much a character study, and then it turns into the battle on Pearl Harbor, but it's a movie that really relies on its actors, and I think they all did phenomenally with the material so I guess before we get too deep into it, what did you think about From Here to Eternity? Yeah, so before I had ever seen this movie, I knew it just from the one iconic scene of Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr kissing on the beach, just like laying in the sand, the waves come crashing over them, which is, you know, very scandalous for the time. And I think it is what the movie is remembered for. If you're just boiling it down to the simplest terms and ideas, people know it from that. And I will say that when I've watched it, both times that I've watched it, I'm always surprised by how early that sequence actually comes in the movie because (laughs) it's like, oh, this is it. Okay. And I think that for me, this movie, it's a good movie, but it isn't quite a great movie for me personally. And I think that is in part because... I tend to compare it to a lot of the other wartime films that are character-driven, like The Best Years of Our Lives, for instance, which reaches those transcendent heights for me with Weiler behind the camera. Zinnemann is a different type of filmmaker. He's definitely an actor's director. He has directed 19 actors to Oscar nominations, and I think that is really his strong suit. But as far as the filmmaking goes, I think it's a solid film, but it's not one that I go back to as one of the great Best Picture winners from the time. I think I could maybe get to that point, though, because as I've been left thinking about the movie, it has really left a lasting impression on me that I didn't expect from watching it. And what I love about Zinnemann here working with these actors is that nearly all of them are against type, which is pretty cool. So Deborah Carr was known at the time for being this English woman who played these kind of, you know, patrician aristocrats. And here she's playing a woman who is cheating on her husband with another man. And she's also playing an American. So it's very against type for her. Montgomery Clift was not the first choice for this role either. And Harry Cohn of Columbia at the time thought he was absolutely wrong for a military man for this part. But I think he brings this incredible sensitivity 
to the part. And I think he's, I mean, he's always wonderful. He's my favorite actor, period, from this time. But I think he takes the role to a level that, I don't know, another actor who might have been perfect on paper for the part might not have done. And what's interesting is that they had to make some big changes to the text in order to get the military's approval on the film. The first was that um, Maggio, his treatment of Fatso, could not be shown. And any kind of violence couldn't be attributed to military policy, which is kind of a big deal. And I feel like because of Montgomery Clift's acting here in this movie, you understand the effects of the military without them needing to spell it out in a really crystal clear way. That's absolutely his power as an actor. And then you have Donna Reed, who's used to, I mean, if you think about It's a Wonderful Life, this could not be a more different role for her. She, as Mary, is this like all-American, good-natured housewife. And Frank Sinatra, who was at an absolute low point in his career to take on a role like this and then to end up winning an Oscar, put him back in a really good position. So I think that the strengths of the movie are in the characters and they are in the actors. And I think that's what will stick with me and what will make me want to revisit this in the future and will make it maybe even a stronger film in retrospect. And talking about Deborah, she wasn't the first choice for this character. They originally wanted Joan Crawford, (laughs) which I absolutely cannot see in this role. And she turned it down because she didn't like the costumes, (laughs) which not only seems like a Joan thing, but... Again, I just can't see her in this role. And I think Deborah, being a British actress, playing an American, it works for me. Mm-hmm. I don't love how the story portrays women here, how Prue picks up Alma, or how the captain has been cheating on his wife. And then when the wife has this affair, she's looked down on by the other men. And then how the military, how they just treat mostly Prue, but also Angelo. It's just they tear him down so much. And then in the end, he wants to go back and help them and fight for his country. Like, I get it, but it does not paint the army in a positive light at all. And again, maybe it was of the time. And this is a few years after World War II. So again, looking at it from a distance, I think it's easier to be more critical of certain things about the story. But overall, I think I can understand why audiences like this movie and were drawn to it. Yeah, I think that I think what's interesting is it's, you know, it's it's looking at the military at a time right before the US entered World War II. So, I like the idea that we know that something cataclysmic is coming for these people. And when you think of a war movie, you think of battle sequences and you think of, you know, the actual war. I like that instead it focuses on wartime. It feels like this very intimate film that is also epic in a way. And because of the time that it focuses on and the characters at the center of that. And I feel like there is a lot of violence still in the movie, but it feels, I don't know, it it feels important in a way. And I think Montgomery Clift is who I keep coming back to, that he really is like the one who is defiant and I like watching how defiant he can be really in the face of everything else and you're able to see 
just through little looks that he gives and just through certain scenes, how different of a person he maybe could have been if he wasn't in the army. And that is, I think, that core tension of the movie, too. What would these men's lives and the women, what would these characters' lives be like if they weren't, you know, tied to the military, tied to an organization that's associated with rules and regulations and violence? So I think that that's that's something I really, really like about it. And I believe that's why it's, you know, been celebrated over the years. I think the reason why it won so many Oscars... Like, looking back on this, I mean, a juggernaut, right? 13 nominations and 8 wins. I think part of the reason why it won so many was because it was pretty provocative for the time. It took a source material that was considered unadaptable and got pretty incredible performances out of its stars. So, while it's not one that I consider to be one of my favorites from the time... I do think it it holds up in particular ways. And I think mostly because Montgomery Clift is a star and Deborah Carr is the same way. Like these are people who I will watch anything that they're in pretty much. But um, I think it holds up because of its ideas and because of the actors really and their performances. You keep saying provocative and it just doesn't come across that way today. Yeah. Like, yes, that beach scene. But when I watch it, I guess I'm like expecting something way worse. And I don't mean that it's aged poorly, (laughs) but none of it is just really shocking to me. And I guess maybe that's why I have trouble, like, one, talking about it or just to like really connecting with it. But it really does come back to the performances to me. And that's really what held my attention for the movie. Do you think anything was snubbed? I honestly don't really think anything was snubbed. I do have a quick note on your comment about it being provocative or not. But before I get to that, I will say that I don't really have a snub, but I do have a category switch I would make. Deborah Carr should have been in supporting. I don't think she's a lead in the movie. I think she belongs in supporting with Donna Reed. I think that while I love their performances, I think that that the women are kind of sidelined into supporting roles in the movie. And it really is about the men. Mm -hmm. It's about Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift and these men who are kind of navigating the world that they're in. When I say it's provocative, I don't mean necessarily that, oh, we're seeing, I don't know, this like sex scene or anything like that. It's more so that, Yes, one, it was toned down for the censors, absolutely. And that's, I think, why it was able to get made, make money, win Oscars, everything like that. But it was taking something that was very anti-war, anti-military, and had very frank language about violence and about sex. And I think taking a source material like that at the time is very bold. So while the movie itself isn't like some 70s, you know, new Hollywood film that I love, I think that what it does is it's interesting for 1953, not 2023, (laughs) if that makes sense. I mean, I I knew what you were saying and I read about the movie and, you know, this is very much a part of 
its release and what people talked about, what critics wrote about. But yeah, it's just watching it today. It's you're either expecting a lot more or Mm -hmm. you just realize that things at the time were very different. I mean, even newer war movies we get, they're very Mm pro-military. And this is not that, which does feel a bit provocative, especially for the 50s, even if that were today. Mm -hmm. I mean, the closest thing that I can think about is like Full Metal Jacket. Which, I mean, we don't want to compare this movie to Full Metal Jacket because then I won't be (laughs) as kind to it anymore, I guess. But yeah, so I don't have, back to your snubs question, I don't really have any snubs aside from just switching categories mm-hmm. for for my my girl, Deborah. Is that a <laughs> thing where, you've mentioned before on the pod, but it's like leading actors were never put in supporting because that was like a character actor thing? Or was this just like a mishandling? It's kind of strange. And I think it makes sense for her to be in lead with where she was in her career. I haven't done enough research on when that actually switches over Mm -hmm. to be more about like screen time or, you know, are you a true supporting player versus a decision made by a studio based on Mm -hmm. who you are and your star power. But yeah, I think it's starting to switch over here a little bit. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Because here we have a good mix in supporting. Like if you look, we have like Donna Reed, Grace Kelly, Geraldine Page, Marjorie Rambeau and Thelma Ritter. Thelma Ritter, our queen and supporting actress, mm-hmm. always holding it down. <laughs> so I think it's usually usually a good mix. But Deborah Carr, yeah, she might have just been too big of a star already okay. to be in supporting. So Deborah Carr is kind of our, she's like our, you know, Glenn Close, Amy Adams, that type of actress. She was nominated <laughs> Six times and never won. She has an honorary, but no no Oscar. This was only her second nomination, though, but she had been already working for a bit in the industry when From Here to Eternity came out. Well, the famous line with her getting cast was Cone talking to Zinneman and Teradash, the screenwriter, and he like just got off the phone with Deborah Carr's agent, and he goes, you know who this stupid son of a bitch suggested? Deborah Carr and they looked at each other and were like wait yeah we like that so it's funny that like that's the memory of her getting into this movie too yeah that's funny that is I would definitely if you're if you want to watch more of her movies have you seen Black Narcissus yet the Powell and Pressburger movie no but I I really want to yeah we should cover more of her honestly we could do a Powell and Pressburger Colonel Blimp and Black Narcissus double that's a great idea. Please, let's do that. But I would say, yeah, if you're if you're looking for more of her work, she has some really like dark, dangerous stuff in her career that's way different than like some of her stuff that's like this even. Even though I think she's wonderful in this movie, I think some of her other roles are far more interesting. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they'd receive it pretty well. I think close comparison to this maybe would be like Titanic because you kind of have this big impending thing that's coming right at the end of the movie that you know is coming based on history depending on who you ask it's not as epic as Titanic but I think that type of story still does really well with the Academy if you focus on the characters and then you have like a big historical event 
that that is tied to, that can really work on voters. Maybe Oppenheimer is similar. I don't know. Ooh, I I like the Oppenheimer comparison more because it's a slower movie. I think Titanic Mm -hmm. is just really bold and I think growing up with it, that's a little, that affects Mm -hmm. how I view it too. But Oppenheimer, yeah, it's slower. It's about the characters. And when I was watching this, I really wasn't expecting the Pearl Harbor attack to happen. Like it totally does take you by surprise. But I do agree that they would love this movie today. I think it fits the bill for a lot of movies, either audience favorites or otherwise, very similarly. It would maybe not have 13 Oscars, but I think it would still win quite a few and have probably upwards of 10 nominations total. Mm-hmm. In the acting branch. I mean, they would definitely still go oh, for yeah. it, for sure. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give mine to Frank Sinatra for supporting. Oh, wow. I really liked him and that he's giving this performance that we really didn't expect. I mean, I don't know if people were expecting him to sing, knowing he was going to be in like a drama even. But mm-hmm. like, yes, Pruitt is put through the ringer, literally, but... So is Angelo, and I think the way he emulates all of those frustrations and how he acts out, and this was his only Oscar win. He had an honorary too, but I think winning for this against-type role is really impressive, and I'm glad he won. What would you give it? Before I say mine, we didn't talk about this with Frank Sinatra, but are you aware of the story of this movie and how it connects to The Godfather? The Godfather, yeah, oh, isn't that that's crazy? That's so, so interesting. Like that whole thing with Johnny Fontaine and The Godfather mm-hmm. and wanting to get the role in that movie is apparently nothing has been confirmed, but rumored to be based on Frank Sinatra going to Harry Cohn and wanting this role Which to is revitalize his career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked, but. He mm-hmm. was also frowned upon in the industry and yeah, just as like an awful person, which is messy and awful in itself. But I don't know. He, he I guess, really transformed on screen. Yeah, no, he is good. I think he's good in this movie. I agree. And his marriage at the time was crumbling, too, with Ava Gardner. He was he was really going through it. The pendulum was mm-hmm. swinging for <laughs> Frank yeah. Sinatra. But my Oscar... As much as I've talked about Monty and how great he is, I mean, I would give him multiple Oscars really throughout his career. I think that Donna Reed is great in this movie as Alma. I think that the flip really that she does in her career and how she's known for playing the exact opposite type in her earlier work. But she, I think, in her scenes with Prue, she is so, so believable. I love the ending of this movie and in her character's like final conversation with Karen, I think, I don't know. I was really, really impressed by her here and I think it's a deserving supporting actress Oscar. I also love that it enabled her to break away from Harry Cohn because he was giving her bad roles and then she was able to start the Donna Reed show, which she continued Hmm. for the rest of her career. So I'm glad that the Oscar gave her, her the opportunity to, break free of the studio system. So I would say Donna Reed. 
Okay, next we have Julius Caesar. Brutus is convinced by a scheming band of Roman senators led by Caius Cassius that his dear friend Julius Caesar intends to dissolve the Republic and install himself as monarch, and he joins a conspiracy to assassinate him. Brutus stirringly defends his actions, but when Mark Antony responds with a speech that plays upon the crowd's love for their fallen leader, a battle between the two factions is assured. This was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and stars Marlon Brando, James Mason, John Gielgud, Deborah Carr, again, Greer Garson, and more. This was nominated for five Oscars and won one for Art Direction Black and White. The other four nominations were for Picture, Actor for Brando, Cinematography Black and White, and Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. For Precursors, at the BAFTAs, John Gielgud won Best British Actor and... Marlon Brando won Best Foreign Actor. It's very fun to see how these categories evolve mm-hmm. over time. But this is a Shakespeare adaptation of Julius Caesar, of course. What did you think of this film? I hadn't read this Shakespeare play before, but I think it's very clear very early on that you don't have to before you see this movie because it is very straight from the page. I guess maybe I expected more having seen, we've talked about All About Eve before, and I think the complexities in that story. But watching a movie, I think I wanted more than just watching a play. I don't do well with this type of material anyway, and I just kind of lost interest after a while. I think the performances are good. I mean, all eyes are on Marlon Brando the whole time. I wish he had more to do. I mean, he has a pretty big role as Mark Antony, but also James Mason as Brutus. I liked him and Lewis Calhern as Caesar. But again, it's very straightforward. If you've read it, do you have to see the movie? I don't know. And then they remade this in the 70s with Charlton Heston. I don't think I'll be turning up for that screening anytime soon, but... (laughs) Have you seen that one? Have you seen this before? What What did you think about Julius Caesar? I have not seen the Charlton Heston. Um, so I read Julius Caesar sophomore year of high school, and we watched this movie in class. And then I read it again for another Shakespeare class in college. So I'm very familiar with Julius Caesar as a play. And I think that what's interesting about the film is more so just the historical context when you think of, you know, big directors at the time wanting to take on Shakespeare and how this movie was Joseph L. Mankiewicz's kind of foray into this type of work. And if you look at his filmography as a director, it's kind of interesting because he has some great films that I am absolutely obsessed with and love deeply, like All About Eve. I love A Letter to Three Wives, which we've talked about before, but he has some of these epics that just do not hit for me. Julius Caesar is one of them. Cleopatra, of course, the famed Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, four hour (laughs) feature. That's one that... (laughs) I would love for you to try to make it through all 250 or so odd minutes of that one. But he was a director who just kind of wanted to, he wanted to try his hand at Shakespeare, which I think makes sense. And at the time I read an inside Oscar that 
this film was shown in a Broadway theater, the booth in New York, because they wanted to show audiences that this was like highbrow theater, right? Even though it was Mm. a film and they didn't have theaters like this in LA, but the theater where it premiered in Hollywood wasn't allowed to serve popcorn because they wanted audiences to think (laughs) it was this really serious thing like the theater. And I think, you know, this film, it's not Chimes at Midnight. It's not Polanski's Macbeth. It's not Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. It doesn't really do anything that makes it feel like an original Shakespearean adaptation to me. Like you don't feel like Mankiewicz is really trying anything new, but I think it's still fun to watch if you like Shakespeare, if you like this story and if you want to see great actors from the time working together, I think it's certainly like worth a watch, but you know, it's one of those things where I think you can, you know, either read the play or watch the movie. You don't necessarily need to do both. I don't really think this is going to supplement that experience in any way. It's interesting to look at Marlon Brando in this movie. You know, you think of him really as a method actor, someone who's really kind of reaching ahead when you think of the medium and you think of his performances in A Streetcar Named Desire or On the Waterfront. He's so just like free and animalistic and different for the time. And this makes him kind of go into something really traditional. And I think that's that's less fun. I don't really think he breaks out of that. I love watching him, of course. <laughs> But yeah, and I also think, you know, the other interesting thing here is that you have Greer Garson as Calpurnia and Deborah Carr as Portia. And these two are so interesting to compare because they're two of MGM's greatest leading ladies, both redheads. Greer earned the Oscar that proved to be elusive for Deborah Carr, but Deborah Carr also took on far more interesting projects, I think, later on in her career. But it's interesting because Deborah Carr kind of market corrected Greer Garson. So it was kind of like there was only room for one redhead at MGM. And it's fun to see both of them together Mm. in this movie. You talking about the theater part. That's like the opposite of what a movie should be. Yeah. And like it was fun going to the actual theater to watch The Irishman. But I don't know about this. It's so funny that they which they tried to be like, no, no, yeah, this isn't a film. A this is a play. Thing. Film is lowbrow. Theater is highbrow. That, that You're watching theater. And they tried to mm-hmm. make it feel like as close to that experience as possible. But it's like, it's interesting to consider how people viewed film at the time. Because you had so many, I think, like competing opinions about it. Which is where we are today, too, really. Right. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I definitely don't think it would do as well. I think if you're going to adapt Shakespeare especially, but any sort of play, you need to do something unique with that material. Or you need to make it feel like you're expanding the world. And I mean, part of the story is making it feel claustrophobic. But I don't know, thinking about an adaptation like Fences... It still expands the world apart from the house where it's concentrated in. You see the city around them. And that movie got nominated for Best Picture too. But I think if a movie like this is made today, I don't think it gets nominated for Picture. I think it would be an actor's movie and it would probably focus on those. But also I wouldn't call this like a technical film, like a highly technical film where it got 
nominated for cinematography. And yeah, I just don't think that translates today. What do you think? I agree. I think these sorts of like sword and sandals movies also were so big at the time. And today it's not something the Academy goes for. I mean, the tragedy of Macbeth, which is far better than Julius Caesar, Joel Cohen's film, couldn't Mm -hmm. even get into a field of 10. And that had incredible texts, right? Like the cinematography by Bruno Del Bonnell did get in. Denzel got in. But that was... In a similar way to this, I guess, directed by someone who previously won Best Director, who had a Best Picture Oscar, but I don't think the Academy today cares, really, about movies like this. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't think it would, it would get in. I kept thinking about Cohen's Macbeth, and I was like, wait, but I liked that movie. So I don't think it's that I hate Shakespeare. It's just mm-hmm. how this movie presented the material. And... To be fair, I do think also, I personally think Macbeth is a way more compelling Shakespearean text, right, to Julius Caesar. But I think that he was out to try to make something different, whereas Mankiewicz was out to make something traditional and sturdy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sturdy. (laughs) Do you think anything was snubbed? You know, I I think this is good. I I think this is a good... uh, Good collection for this. Do you want to give? Do we want to give Greer another nomination here? <laughs> she would never have wanted to go supporting anyway. But yeah, no, I think this is good. What about you? I mean, we could nominate more of the actors. I'm somewhat surprised James Mason wasn't nominated as Brutus. And really, the flip side, like I'm surprised that Brando's the only nominee out of all the characters. So yeah, sure. I don't know. Nominate. Nominate the women, nominate some other men. We can make some nomination swaps for the actors. I'd allow that. I'm just laughing at the nominate the women, nominate the men. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it art direction, black and white, which is what it won. I do like the sets in this movie. I'm saying, like, nominate all the actors, but don't let them win, I guess. But... (laughs) Yeah, I do like the set design. I think for this time, I mean, the next movie we talk about is similar in a way that it wants to be this epic film. And I think a lot of the movies like this, especially Ben-Hur, really utilize their sets and lots of extras. That's definitely the, the biggest thing that I like about this movie. What would you give it? So despite what I said earlier about Marlon Brando being weighed down by the direction here, I think he's he's really good at the key speeches. So like the friends, mm-hmm. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Those key speeches that we think of when we think of Julius Caesar, I think he nails them. I think he does a really great job. And that was something that caught me by surprise. Marlon Brando's a great actor, so that's kind of silly to say that it surprised you. But it's just, I think... Something that makes the film feel a little bit different compared to just a straight Shakespeare adaptation. So I would say Marlon Brando for actor. Wonder if I'll go acting all the way down today. We will see. (laughs) No, I like that one. He's, He's close for me too. Okay, next up we have The Robe. Description here. In this biblical epic, a drunk and disillusioned Roman, Marcellus Gallio, wins Jesus's robe in a dice game after the crucifixion. Marcellus has never been a man of faith like his slave Demetrius, but when Demetrius escapes with the robe, 
Marcellus experiences disturbing visions and feels guilty for his actions. Convinced that destroying the row will cure him, Marcellus sets out to find Demetrius and discovers his Christian faith along the way. This was directed by Henry Coster. It stars Richard Burton, Gene Simmons, and Michael Rennie. This was nominated for five Oscars and won two for Art Direction, Color, and Costume Design Color. Its other nominations were for Picture, Actor for Burton, and Cinematography Color. Its main precursor was winning Motion Picture Drama at the Golden Globes, which is pretty big. What did you think of The Robe? So I think this was the hardest time I've had with any movie we've covered on an Oscar Ever on the pod? Ever. No. Yes. Oh my god. I had such a hard time getting through the robe. (laughs) Wow. I don't love these sorts of biblical epics to start. I think that this movie is really, really searching for Ben-Hur somewhere in here. Mm -hmm. But to me... This was just a dull, endless slog of nothing. (laughs) And I think there's a reason that this movie is sort of lost to history, aside from the key detail, which makes it really important, which is that it's the first movie to be shot in Cinemascope. And I do think it is very beautiful. Like, it's a very visually resplendent film. But to me, there was just nothing there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had a really, really hard time getting through this. And I try to give every movie a fair shot. And I did. I, I made it through. But it was a tough, tough go for me. Wow, I am shocked. I've had much harder times with movies. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think I just... I kind of wrote off its seriousness very quickly. I mean, my famous letterboxed review was calling this a camp retelling of the crucifixion. (laughs) I mean, I would have loved like a John Waters version of the robe where we really just turn up the camp and make it like solely about a garment. If we really wanted to push it, go for it. Sure. Like a, a true camp version Mm -hmm. of it yes it was just very unserious and like jay (laughs) robinson's portrayal of coligula was just total camp it was very gay (laughs) so it's just from the start there were certain things happening like like marcellus going up to diana but he's with somebody else it just none of it was clicking for me and then all of a sudden you realize that you're watching jesus carry the cross (laughs) <laughs> and falling and it's like what is happening and then marcellus touches the robe and like has a fit it's just it's all too heavy-handed very metaphorical but yeah and then what it's saying about the christian faith and uh, it was it was just too much but i had fun with it so i'm kind of surprised that you really struggled <laughs> i struggled way worse with another movie coming <laughs> I'm really surprised that you didn't struggle, you know, knowing that I did. Yeah, I also thought Richard Burton was really phoning it in here. Like, it just kind of seemed like he's like, okay, fine, I'll do this movie, I guess. I've done this type of role dozens of times. Here we go. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how he felt to me. 
And I agree. Like, there were certain parts that I did laugh at, specifically, like, during the crucifixion. But, like, you're not supposed to laugh during the crucifixion. So I just knew it was, like, this movie was trying to be serious. So it, it, I think, really went from, at times, just being so dull to then, all of a sudden, you're at the crucifixion. And they're, like, freaking out about this robe and screaming about meeting their king. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was like, how, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to take this? Yeah, I mean, like when he walks up and sees Jesus on the cross, you're like walking through the crowd and these people are just like watching these people. Like you're just scanning the people in this crowd. And I think just the, the idea of people gathering to watch this happen who are just seem like normal bystanders mm-hmm. and they're not crying, they're not shouting, they're just watching feels like a totally different movie or experience Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just not what i expected from it yeah i did write down quite a few lines that were pretty horrid oh my god go through them i want to hear well that early scene when marcellus is with diana and she like sees him being with other women and she goes i see you made promises to others and he goes but only one vow to diana It's like, oh, God, get a grip. (laughs) These men today are awful. They're still like this. (laughs) Centuries later. And they end the conversation, and he goes, every man makes enemies. And she retorts, all your enemies seem to be women. I love how sharp she is and how Mm -hmm. dull he is. But, yeah, it's just one after the other. And... This is trying so hard to be Ben-Hur. Like, the music, the set design. Later on, when they saved Demetrius, it reminded me of the horse race from Ben-Hur. And that, like, gallant music. And I'm like, this does not fit the time and what they're capturing. It was just so discordant. It's crazy because, so, like, Weiler's Ben-Hur, which we've talked about, Mm -hmm. like, comes after this. It should be... (laughs) <laughs> the other like, way around. Yeah, <laughs> but there were earlier iterations of it, but it's trying, yeah, it's trying to be gone with the wind, kind of. Like, it's just, it's really searching for that sort of historic, epic feel. But you when mentioning you the cinemascope, I thought what you said about, like, all of the people kind of around in the periphery, you're reacting to the cinemascope. Exactly what they, what they really wanted, I think, is that you could see everyone in the frame and you could just see like all of these extras and different Mm -hmm. sets and it really transformed film in the way that we know it of getting this kind of widescreen effect and how busy everything in the background could be so how do you think today's academy would receive this movie um i'm trying to think of like a (laughs) modern (laughs) i'm trying to think of a modern comparison to the robe since they're not really making these sorts of movies anymore i think that if the robe were made today like dennis quaid might be attached to it it might be like one of those really odd faith-based films or Mm -hmm. it would have been with like vertical entertainment or something like that so i don't i don't think the academy would go for it in the same way today but if it did have the invention of a new technology we could not ignore it and i don't think they would ignore it either i'm trying to think of a modern comparison to it it's hard to because this is just so of its time what about you the crazy thing is that this 
was the second highest grossing movie of the year, even more than From Here to Eternity. So I guess you have to include it in a sense because it was so appreciated. But it is hard to find an equivalent of today, even just like ancient Greek or Roman films. I mean, the last like big one from the Oscars I can think of is like Gladiator. Mm. Kind of similar, kind of not. I mean, apart from The Passion of the Christ, which is... I was just thinking that. The second you said Gladiator, I was like, wait, we are actually maybe missing (laughs) the the biggest one one. (laughs) so maybe it would be like passion of the christ which got technical nominations cinematography score and makeup i mean i i get that i think i do appreciate how it's capturing the story in a different way and what about snubs for me (laughs) no snubs there are no snubs here (laughs) this is a perfect haul for it what about you um honestly nominate jay robinson because that performance was just really fun i guess nominate him for supporting actor we talked about frank sinatra and we have eddie albert coming up next for roman holiday and then we have brandon dewilda and jack palance from shane also coming up and robert strauss from stalag 17 so maybe there isn't room for him but he he would make a fun addition to this list Mm -hmm. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think I would give it cinematography. I think the cinemascope here really works. The colors totally pop. You have the rust-colored robe. And I think a lot of the costumes, I mean, they won for those two. But the colors around and the sets, again, I love the use of extras and just the depth that it captures. What would you give it? As Aretha Franklin said about Taylor Swift, great gowns, beautiful gowns. That is how I will describe the robe. So I will be giving my Oscar to costume design, color. I think that we need to give the titular robe something. But I did think that the costumes were very beautiful and they popped. There are a lot of costumes too, very vibrant colors. So I would say, I think for me, it definitely has to be something visual because the movie is beautiful to look at, but that's as far as it goes for me. So I will just say costume design color. On to a movie that I love far more than The Robe. We have Roman Holiday. Overwhelmed by her suffocating schedule, touring European princess Anne takes off for a night while in Rome. When a sedative she took from her doctor kicks in, however, she falls asleep on a park bench and is found by an American reporter, Joe Bradley, who takes her back to his apartment for safety. At work the next morning, Joe finds out Anne's regal identity and bets his editor he can get an exclusive interview with her, but romance soon gets in the way. This was directed by William Wyler and stars Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck, Eddie Albert, and more. was nominated for 10 Oscars and won three Best Actress for Audrey Hepburn, Best Story, and Costume Design, Black and White, for the legendary Edith Head. The other seven nominations were for Picture, Director, Supporting Actor for Eddie Albert, Screenplay, Art Direction Black and White, Cinematography Black and White, and Film Editing. Precursors, it was Audrey Hepburn Central. She won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama and Best British Actress at the BAFTAs. And this also won Best Written American Comedy at the WGAs. So... Had you seen Roman Holiday before, or was this your first time watching it? I think I'd seen it a while ago, so 
when the ending came about, we'll get to this eventually. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was on the edge of my seat. I love that Weiler directed this. I think he really made it his own. And one of the first title cards that we get, it says filmed in its entirety in Italy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like the most magical part is that you can get lost in the streets of Rome. It's not the only reason that this movie works. It's it's one of the best known rom-coms of all time. And I think Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck are amazing. But it really like this is Audrey's first big Hollywood film. And she wins mm -hmm. an Oscar for it for her first nomination. We just covered Sabrina and talked about her performance there. I think there are some similarities in her performance and the story too. But you just can't help but be transfixed by her the entire time. You love this movie. Tell us a little bit more about why. Yeah, so this is one of my go-to recommendations for people who maybe want to get into old Hollywood, who don't really know where to start. I always recommend Roman Holiday because I think that it shows the glamour of the time. You also, you get to, like you said, go through Italy. I love that it's shot in black and white. I think it would lose some of its magic, actually, if it were shot in color. And I think you're introduced to fabulous stars. Audrey Hepburn, you're right. You cannot look away from her. Um, Gregory Peck is beautiful in this movie. More on him in a second. And I think that Weiler, he's just such a master storyteller, too. Like, he's just, he's so good behind the camera. He knows how to compose a shot. He knows exactly where to put the camera. And I think the tone of this movie is really smart, too. It could be just, like, a really standard, simple story. And in some ways it is. But I like the way that it plays with tone, too. Like, you have these great comedic moments. But then you also have this dramatic romance, too. And I don't know. I think it's a story that can just sweep you off your feet and you can get really lost in the world of the film. And it's just, it's one of the like touchstones of the period for me and some, in a film I always go back to. And, you know, I watched it when I was really little for the first time. And I just remember thinking like, I want to marry Gregory Peck. All men should look like Gregory mm -hmm. Peck in Roman holiday and be like Gregory Peck in Roman holiday. And I still feel that way when I watch the movie years later <laughs> so he and Audrey are so great together they have great chemistry and I I like that they're kind of both deceiving each other she's keeping a secret from him and he's keeping a secret mm -hmm. from her but yeah I think it's just fun it's fun getting lost in the sights of Rome right like when I went to Italy in high school for the first time I remember making sure that I watched Roman Holiday before I went so I could go to all the places mm -hmm. from the movie um, because it's, yeah, I just, I love it. It's, it's such a beautiful movie and yeah, it's just easy to slip into. There's one sequence in particular when they're on the motorcycle and getting chased that is just impeccable. It is so beautiful. As you watch it, I mean, you question how it got made because it's a sequence where you get swept along with the actors, with the characters in the story. There's something about this movie that... Again, I love Weiler's touches in here. I think, you know, the this sequence in particular, but using the Italian public, using a lot of extras is his thing. That's why I loved mm -hmm. seeing that in this movie. But there's something that, I don't know, like, not that it doesn't work. I don't really fall in love with their relationship. And I don't know why. I can't pinpoint it. But 
even for like other movies from the 40s or the 50s, even the 60s that we've covered before, this just has a different kind of charm. Mm-hmm. Like Casablanca, yes, really well known, but there's an essence there that I don't feel here. And I don't know why. And even with Sabrina, like, you know, a few years later, which again, she is nominated for, and a director that we love, Billy Wilder, it just, it feels different. I was going to ask you how you felt about the romance, because I know sometimes you don't like that as much or like have trouble with it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you put it that way, because I also, like when I think of great film romances, I never think of theirs, even though this is one of my favorite movies. And I think it's because for me, this movie is about her falling in love with a world outside of what she's used to. Yes, he's there. And he's this Obviously, like I like I mentioned, I love him. I think he's a quite literally perfect <laughs> man in this movie. I always think about it as this kind of anti-transformation arc for Audrey. And we talked about with Sabrina how Audrey Hepburn is the perfect actress for these sorts of transformation arcs of characters. And usually when we have a Cinderella story in a film, the character is going from normal girl to glamorous woman and you know like look at sabrina like she goes from watching parties in a tree to being this glamorous Mm -hmm. parisian woman who comes back a different person or in my fair lady where she has a complete transformation too but this is the opposite she begins this movie as princess anne and she's you know she's so glamorous and gorgeous at that opening party and but we see due to Weiler and due to Hepburn's incredible comedic timing we see little traces of a difference in her or you know a yearning for another type of life when she loses her shoe (laughs) and you just kind of see her you know that her face as she's trying to figure out a way to put it back on Mm -hmm. and I think in here right she goes from being a princess to a regular woman and To call Audrey Hepburn a regular woman is kind of silly because no one else would look good with that haircut that she gets. But she suddenly, you know, wants to live this life as a regular person. And I feel like that is the beauty in it. It's not so much the romance itself, but it's the the idea of her as a new person incognito in this city. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm always charmed by more than their relationship. I think their relationship is, it's fun to watch. It's great. You do get swept up in it, but I agree. It's not, for me at least, like one of the great love stories of the time. I feel like it's more about everyone falling in love with Audrey Hepburn as a star and the Anne character falling in love with a new type of life that she's never had before. And I'm always very moved at the end when Eddie Albert's character gives her that envelope of photographs that he took and you realize it's like she can't go back to that life ever again but she's able to have those memories and that's such a beautiful feeling that you have at the end of the movie and that only someone like Weiler I think could achieve Mm -hmm. I think when you put it that way it makes it feel like more of a slice of life film because their lives continue on after the movie where they started but that's also why this movie works for me is that it's Mm -hmm. somewhat real 
Gregory and Andre capture these characters and give them a really relatable life. But yeah, the ending when all the press is there and she sees them and he gives her the pictures and he shows her the secret camera and it's all of these glances. It's all of these silent moments that it's this realization, but there's no big finale. And I just, I loved it so much that you were waiting and waiting and waiting to see her come around the corner and to come after him. But she has a different life. He's going to be working for this newspaper for the rest of his life, doing the same old thing. And they go their separate ways and they realize that they have this blissful time together. And I mean, that you can take and compare with your own life. And it's just like, oh, the melancholy of that kind of memory and feeling and experience. It, it's beautiful. What was, I just saw Bottoms and... <laughs> The one I love, character I she's loved like, bottoms. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> absolute riot of a time. Mm-hmm. But when the one character like says jokingly, "Don't be sad." What, what is it? Don't be sad. It. <laughs> Don't be sad. It's over. Smile because it happened. <laughs> like so stupid, but it it works here too. I think. <laughs> but that's that's how we feel about Roman Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I I totally agree. I love the ending so much. I hated the ending when I was little because I wanted them to end up together so badly. I was like, oh, why can he not end up with her? But it absolutely makes sense. And I think the ending is absolutely vital to the rest of the story. Like you said, their lives go on and they can't be together. The best they can do is just to have the time that they did. And I think there's so much Mm -hmm. beauty in that. And I love love what Wyler does in that final scene, how he just keeps the camera on Gregory Peck for a long time. Like the the room empties and he's just standing there. He keeps the camera low and you can see the rest of the room, the empty room behind him, just Mm -hmm. in case she comes out. But you know deep down she's not going to. And you just see the smile kind of come across Gregory Peck's face like he's thinking about that memory even though he knows that's it mm-hmm. and you just watch him walk out and it's and he walks past the camera it's so so good it's like it's yeah. the perfect ending for the yeah, movie exactly like La La Land in a way too oh, oh my god great comparison Jeez. of that like final both of them their little like smiles at the end mm-hmm. like okay that was something in our past that just won't won't continue on into the future So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think it would still do pretty well today, especially if it were made by a director like Weiler, who had already gotten his flowers, who they clearly loved and featured a brand new star. I mean, they still do love star making performances. I loved learning that Gregory Peck wanted the and Audrey Hepburn title card to come before the title of the film. I thought that was just a really nice little detail from mm-hmm. him. But yeah, I think I think they would still still receive it really well today. What about you? Yeah, I think it would still do really well today. I mean, you mentioning La La Land, so did that. But you saying it would need like a well-known director, it made me think of Bradley Cooper. I, I oh kind of get like a Star is Born <laughs> vibes from this kind of story too. That would be fun. But yeah, it hits all the right notes. And I think... You know, the ending is impactful and shooting on location 
there are just so many elements that I think still really work today. And do you think that anyone was snubbed? Well, I mean, the big elephant in the room is Gregory Peck. Yeah, where is he? Like, goodbye, Richard Burton from The Robe. <laughs> let's get rid of him and let's put Gregory Peck in for Roman yeah. Holiday. Easy fix. That's kind of crazy. But otherwise, it has a lot of the tech nominations. Yeah, you can't really fault it elsewhere. Do you think anything else is snubbed? I really think for me, it's it's just Gregory Peck. And the weird thing about it is he had already been nominated four times for Best Actor before this. So it's mm. not like he's kind of like a Donald Sutherland type or one of those where they don't nominate him for some reason, even though he's in a big movie and gives a great performance. I guess they just, I mean, The Robe being such a high grossing film, I guess they decided to go with Richard Burton instead. But it is sort of perplexing that he wasn't nominated, considering the strength of the film elsewhere. And Audrey Hepburn dominating, Eddie Albert getting in, its it doesn't really make sense to me why he wouldn't. Right. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? There are so many options for this. Like, I love Weiler's direction. I love the cinematography, Edith Head's costumes, of course. But I have to give Best Actress to Audrey Hepburn. I think it is her movie. And you said earlier, you can't look away from her. It's true. You really can't take your eyes off her the entire movie. She is a born movie star with Roman Holiday. And I think her her introduction here to American audiences... And what she does, you know, with her, with style and influence, it's similar to like Diane Keaton for Annie Hall, how she kind of transformed women's fashion at the time. Audrey Hepburn did the same thing when she really broke through here. And I just feel like she's perfect in this movie. She plays with the drama, the romance, the comedy all so well. And for it to be her first movie is just incredible. What about you? I would also give it to Audrey. I want to applaud William Wyler for making this entire film in Italy, in Rome, mm-hmm. and getting the shots that he did. But it's Audrey's movie, but you don't watch this thinking that this is her big break either. She just immediately finds her own style and has such poise. I think starting out the film, her like big scene is that shoe scene, which is hilarious, mm-hmm. but it is also just such a perfect introduction to Audrey Hepburn. And whether you watch her filmography in order, I mean, I would never guess that this was her first big Hollywood film. And yeah, that just speaks to her abilities as an actress. Okay, we have our final nominee. We'll be talking about Shane. Description here, enigmatic gunslinger Shane rides into a small Wyoming town with hopes of quietly settling down as a farmhand. Taking a job on homesteader Joe Start's farm, Shane is drawn into a battle between the townsfolk and ruthless cattle baron Rufus Riker. Shane's growing attraction to Start's wife, Marion, and his fondness for their son, Joey, who idolizes Shane, force Shane to realize that he must thwart Riker's plan. This was directed by George Stevens. It stars Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, Van Heflin, Jack Palance, and Brandon DeWilda. This was nominated for six Oscars and won one for Cinematography Color. Its other nominations were for Picture, Director, Screenplay, Supporting Actor for Palance, and DeWilda. This didn't have any precursors. I wouldn't have awarded it anything either. 
<laughs> Here we go. Yeah, I mean, just this is not my one note I have for this movie is snooze. Well, you really this don't like westerns. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not I'm not big into westerns. I'm not big into slice of life. This feels very dated to me and like old school, but I can understand why people find this to be like a very soft and emotional almost story and understanding who Shane is. I think Alan Ladd does a great job, but it was just very slow. Okay. So this was slower for you than The Robe. Oh, 100%. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very funny that I think we're flipped on these. How did you feel Mm -hmm. about Shane? I ended up really liking Shane. When I first started it, I actually started laughing to myself, imagining you watching it, because I just knew, (laughs) I just knew that this was going Mm -hmm. to be a tough one. Just when I saw, like, the sweeping vistas and the kid, Joey, and just their their animals and this kind of slice of Western life at this time when, you know, like you mentioned, the homesteaders, like the Homestead Act in mm-hmm. Wyoming, I just knew that this was going to be a tough one for you. So thank you for making it through for the pod but yeah i i liked this a lot i thought it was you know it is slow at first i think it takes you a while to get into the rhythm of it but it is just a really simple story and i think that alan ladd as shane i thought he was great he's not this big tall strong hero that you might expect to come riding up on the horse he's kind of slight for what you might think of Mm -hmm. when you think of a western but i don't know i thought that he was great as this kind of mysterious character who has a backstory that we don't know who, you know, just comes up and really influences and changes the lives of this family. And I think that that was kind of enough for me to just get taken with this story. For me, this was like a very easy watch. An easy watch for you? <laughs> yeah, oh it was easy. <laughs> I don't know. It was just kind of comforting. You know, for me, it's interesting because I had never seen this before, but I've seen a number of the Westerns that are atop of all of those lists of, like, Mm -hmm. the greatest Westerns of all time. And I, for me, like, Shane is not High Noon or Unforgiven or The Searchers. And I think that's because, at first glance, like, it doesn't feel like it necessarily, or even as you're watching it for the first time, it doesn't necessarily feel like it has that power to it. But I think what it does really well is it has, and I know we can be tough on child performances or children in Mm -hmm. movies, your mileage may vary, but I think what really works about it is that it does have this character, Joey, who you can kind of absorb everything through. Like, he's the center of it, I think, so you can kind of, he's the one who keeps it really grounded and shows you maybe how you should or shouldn't feel about certain characters or certain situations. I agree though. I think that if Westerns are not your thing, I understand why this could be a harder watch for you. Yeah. And I think it's partly due to it being such a quiet movie. There is some action, but again, it's very like good versus evil. It's very simply put and that just kind of bored me. The people from the bar were like so bad and they were so quick to 
hate Shane that he was even in the bar with them ordering a drink. And it's just... That's a Western, though. Yeah. I mean, I need more. And him coming on to the wife, I think by that point, I didn't know what was happening anyway. And I'm not big on this kid. I, You know, they were, as they're watching the brawl <laughs> in the bar, and, like, bottles are being thrown everywhere, and the kid is, like, right there. His face is right in the opening where things are being thrown and I'm like like he's actually gonna get hurt because he's stupidly watching this and then the wife comes over and starts watching too I'm like go away let them be or somebody do something to stop this from happening but that's like the whole draw of the sort of masculinity and violence of the time and of Shane that well they're you know that's so appealing to them which to each his own this is the fifth highest grossing movie of 1953. I mean, Roman Holiday isn't in the top 10, but this is. And for a quiet movie, that's surprising to me. Well, this in part, you know, coming like right after High Noon, this was kind of the the Western boom again. So like Westerns were considered sort of tired. And then with Shane and High Noon, they were coming back around again. So I think there was a little bit of an appetite for them after mm-hmm. high noon so it kind of makes sense in that way um i also do love george stevens so he did a place in the sun as well which i really really like and i think the filmmaking is good here too it's like in the i think that the the barroom brawls which i mean a barroom brawl is like a staple of a western um, i think they're shot really well and they're pretty captivating again to each their own i did love the cutaway shots to joey eating his peppermint stick i thought that was very funny i did like that when he's laying under the table with the dog i thought he was going to get shot i was really worried for the end of this movie how do you think today's academy would receive this movie i don't think they would receive it very well as is today um i think if you're going to make a western today it needs to be a revisionist western it has to you know really i think have a very clear clear point i think that the genre itself you have to really really play with it in unique ways for it to be celebrated by the academy so i don't necessarily think this would do as well with the academy today what about you i agree i think maybe alan ladd gets nominated and maybe a few technical awards but i think six is a lot for a movie like this i think also today like it doesn't make as much money and it probably is or more of just a critic's pick but yeah it just doesn't have the appeal of a lot of those like john ford westerns that we love much more and do you think i think we know the answer to this but do you think anything was snubbed me no i don't do you (laughs) i think alan ladd could have been nominated for best actor for playing shane i actually think he gives the best performance in the movie i understand why Brandon DeWilda as Joey, like that makes perfect sense for the type of performance they would have included in Best Supporting Actor. Same with Jack Palance. It took him years to win his Oscar. He didn't win it until City Slickers much later. But those performances, I think they make sense as nominees. And I know that, you know, Alan Ladd had really stiff competition in Best Actor. Names like 
Richard Burton, Marlon Brando, William Holden, Montgomery Cliff, Burt Lancaster, like he's not going to get into a group like that, mm-hmm. especially if Gregory Peck couldn't get in. But I, I don't know. I think he, he could have deserved a nomination there. And Jean Arthur, also not nominated. This is her last movie. So I have to mention her. You know, I, I do love early Jean Arthur. And I think you could have maybe found a place for her, but this also isn't my favorite Jean Arthur performance. I don't think she has as much to do as some of her other movies. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? So I would actually give it the Oscar that it won, which is Cinematography Color. I think it captures that territory really beautifully. And I think it's, you know, known for it those beautiful sweeping vistas that I mentioned earlier. And in order for a Western to be successful, in my eyes, that's something that you need. But I will say, I did have trouble with what they do to the images at nighttime, which almost acts like you're, and I get that this is also part of the time, but I think in the daylight, it is so, so beautiful. And I think when it, even when it's raining, I think there there's a lot of beauty in the images, but sometimes at nighttime, it's really difficult to see. And I know that that's partially because of the time. And I feel a similar way, honestly, about, you know, a lot of Greg Frazier's work. I felt similarly watching Game of Thrones, where I just want them to give me a little bit of help in those nighttime scenes mm-hmm. so I can see what's going on. <laughs> Are you going to give this movie any Oscars? I'll be nice and I'll award it to Alan Ladd because I agree. I think he should have been here. And since he was never nominated by the Academy, I think he deserves something. But his composure, I think how he handles all of the situations, especially in the bar. But I think he gives this really smooth, soft appearance to a character that really has to hold the movie and the story. And I think he does that very well. So as we wrap up our discussion on the 1953 nominees for Best Picture, I think we should each share our own preferential ballots, how we would vote if they were using a preferential ballot system at the time, and our age-old question of, did the Academy get it right by giving the Best Picture Oscar to From Here to Eternity? So we'll answer that, I think, as we go through our preferential ballots. So... What would yours look like? How would you rank these? I would have like four write-in votes. Like none of these would appear. (laughs) Oh my gosh, what would your write-in votes be? We have extras. I have a few. I mean, I would say Stalag 17, Mm -hmm. since he's nominated for director, Billy Wilder, our favorite, Mm -hmm. but that didn't make the picture five. There were a lot of other beloved films this year, and I don't think I'll necessarily think back to 1953 and think about The Robe or Julius Caesar, but Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was also up there. I would probably put Julius Caesar at fifth, Shane at fourth, The Robe third, From Here to Eternity second, and then Roman Holiday in first. What would your ranking be? Um, I agree with you on Stalag 17 and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. If I could make room for those, I absolutely would for my fourth and fifth spots. My number five is The Robe. My number four is Julius Caesar. My number three is Shane. My number two is From Here to Eternity. And my number one is Roman Holiday. So I think we can both say we don't think the Academy got it right here, as we would both give Best Picture to Roman Holiday. 
I will say, like, I understand why From Here to Eternity won, Mm -hmm. but my pick here would definitely be Roman Holiday. Yeah, I think it, at the time, was definitely the movie to win and should have. But I think looking back, we definitely think of Roman Holiday more, just looking at this year. So thank you all for listening to our 1953 Oscar Rewind. It was fun to do, like, a classic best picture rewind like we used to do so i had fun visiting some of these for the first time even if i wasn't as positive on some of them as i would have hoped to be but that's okay i think it was still a fun year to talk about overall and next time on oscar wilde we'll be going back even further in time We'll be talking about someone who never won an Oscar, but won an honorary award. So this is a little spin on our They Won For That series. Like, how did this person just win an honorary, not a competitive Oscar? And we will be talking about the career of Barbara Stanwyck, one of our favorites. We'll be going through her nominations outside of Double Indemnity, since we talked about that last year on November. So we'll be talking about Stella Dallas ball of fire and sorry wrong number we love barbara here so we're excited to celebrate stanwick september (laughs) can't wait for this thank you all for listening feel free to rate review and follow us at oscar wild pod you can also find us on patreon.com slash oscar wild for more bonus content thank you all for listening we'll see you next time (laughs) 